So our first guest this evening is James Kirby. James is a senior lecturer in the School of Psychology at the University of Queensland and honorary associate professor at the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education at Stanford University in California. Apart from his lecturing at UQ, he's also co-director of the Compassionate Mind Research Group, which is based there, amongst other projects which they run, is one that studies the effectiveness of compassion-focused therapy interventions and how they help with self-criticism and shame. He also works as a clinical psychologist in private practice. His first book, Choose Compassion, was published last year by UQP. Please welcome James Kirby to Mullaney. One of the things that's so refreshing about the book, from my perspective, is that you're quite hard-nosed about what compassion is and what it isn't. I mean, there's no airy fairiness to your analysis. While compassion can contain kindness, it's not just kindness. Compassion, you argue, only exists where there is suffering. Perhaps you might begin by explaining what you mean. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for having me, and it's just awesome to be here. Uh, so when we talk about compassion, often it is used interchangeably with words like uh, kindness or warmth, and it can absolutely include those things. Uh, but at its core, compassion is about addressing suffering. And so suffering is often not pleasant. <laughs> A lot of us try to avoid suffering wherever we can. I try to avoid suffering as often as I can. Always looking for a way to avoid pain is a good thing <laughs> in most yeah. people's books. So suffering is things that can be like emotional pain, so like anger, sadness, anxiety. Uh, there can be physical suffering, so injury or hurt. Uh, we can also experience a lack of resource, so you could be without a home or uh, in a war-torn part of the world, unfortunately, or something like that. So compassion's focus on trying to address those causes of suffering and trying to alleviate them if we can. Yeah. And, I mean, the, the interesting thing, think, thing that we need to say, Strava, this is not actually a self-help book. Oh, this no. Is, this, is, this is a book about... Um, what compassion is and, and how it might, how it is, how it does play a part in the in daily life, but also how it might play a, a larger part, possibly. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, what really interests me in compassion is we do see it so often. Like in Australia, every second day, someone's donating a kidney to someone who needs it. That's extraordinary. Uh, we don't see that on the news, but it's awfully compassionate. Well, that, that's, that, that's actually statistics. That's just yeah. a banner of speaking. Every second yeah. day, somebody donates a kidney. In Australia, that, that's a fact. Uh, that's extraordinary. Uh, that takes a lot of courage to do that. Uh, I don't know if I could do that, but, but I would like to think that I could do that. But it's kind of also what's extraordinary is not only you see that, but also there are so many instances where we don't show compassion. And so I became very interested in what factors stop compassionate behaviour being shown. And it can be very simple things, like being late to a meeting can stop you uh, from helping someone. Uh, you would even step over them. <laughs> they would be in, in pain and, and, and kind of on the ground. You'd still step over them if you're running late for a meeting. That's a study done uh, in America. <laughs> it's extraordinary. It wouldn't uh, happen in Australia. <laughs> uh, my kids, sometimes I have to run past <laughs> when they're in pain because I'm late. But, um, you know, we've all got our excuses. <laughs> You, you do delve into some of the questions that have kind of troubled philosophers since the beginning of time, which is like, are we as a species naturally good? You came to some conclusions. <laughs> yeah, you, came, you came to some conclusions there, which I thought were surprisingly optimistic. Yeah, um, I think, you know, it, we've all got the, the, the potential to be extraordinarily compassionate. 
uh, we, we, you know, every day go about our lives um, kind of knowing that if we needed, someone would be there to, to care for us or help for us for the most part. And we live in societies where we try to help those who are most vulnerable. We've got um, education, free education, uh, free health. Uh, we offer um, uh, social support when needed, when we fall on hard times. I mean, that's extraordinary to think that we're deliberately trying to cultivate societies like that to live in. Uh, however, at the same time, when we see people or come into contact with groups that are quite different to us, um, our compassion can turn off uh, very quickly. There was one study just looking at our willingness to help a football fan of the opposing kind of enemy team. And um, in fact, uh, more happiness is taken when they're hurting. Um, but when... <laughs> I mean, it's terrible. Um, so you can turn these things off and on very quickly. Um, but we've, got, we've generally got a, a very good uh, tendency to be compassionate, but we often are weighing up the the costs and benefits of acting compassionate. And sometimes our emotions can get in the road, uh, and other times um, we can overthink things. Yeah. One of the things that you do in terms of that kind of analysis of, of how, what human beings naturally are is that you look into those very famous psychological experiments from the middle of last century. There is the, um, the uh, Milgram test, which was where they were students were in inducing electric shocks in, in other students because they were being told to, and then there was the, um, the bystander one, and there was a few other different things. The, you, you found that those, those experiments really couldn't be replicated. Yeah, there's been a bit of an issue with some of these studies replicating them. I mean, the first one with the obedience studies, this is where you would have to shock someone you couldn't see, but you could hear their screams of pain when they were being shocked. Um, so you would, you know, they'd spell a word incorrectly, and you'd, the participant would have to then administer the shock, and the shocks would increasingly go up until it was a lethal shock, um, so, which is obviously terrible. Um, but they found, that, um, <laughs> they found that a lot of the participants would go along with suggestions, but when the experimenter told them directly, um, you must shock, you must deliver the shock, that's when um, almost all, in fact, the participants would say, no, I'm not going to deliver the shock. So we're suggestible, but when we're told to do something, um, we go, hang on just a second. Um, and then there are all sorts of other contingencies there too. So if you can talk to another person, if you're not just alone, if you can talk to another person, you're much more likely to help than not. Yeah. But we can also deliver the shocks, and a lot will do that, and that's kind of a, a trade-off as well. It's a bit of a, you know, it's not clean and clear yeah. when it comes to acting compassionately. Yeah. And we don't really have time. Yeah, we don't yeah, really yeah. have time to go right through the whole book, unfortunately. No. Because although I do recommend to the audience, because I think it's a fascinating book, the way that you go through all the different aspects of it. But to me, one of the most interesting aspects was when you started talking about self-criticism and shame. That was really fascinating to me about how because we live in a society which is very self-centered. It's all it's me, me, me at the whole time, and it's about fulfilling whatever our desires are. And yet, for some reason, we're not allowed to actually look after ourselves on a deeply emotional basis. Could you talk to that? Yeah, we can really struggle with that. I mean, uh, some of the work I do with, uh, in, in clinically for those who, who struggle with uh, depressive symptoms or experiences, um, they're awfully compassionate towards other people. Uh, but when it comes to being compassionate to their own suffering, they kind of just <laughs> tense right up, or there's just no, no chance of doing that. There's a kind of a real uh, fear, almost, to, to, to even starting to do that. 
um, uh, reasons for I'm not deserving, um, I don't, you know, my pain, you know, I'm just being self-indulgent or selfish or it isn't going to help. Um, and rather they like to, it's terrible that there's a clinging to this kind of um, self-talk which is very attacking and hostile, like, you idiot, what's wrong with you? You're such a, you know, it can get quite colourful, the language. Um, that they're talking to themselves, but if it was someone that they cared about and they were going through it similarly, the same experience, um, they would be incredible. They'd change their tone, they'd show concern, they would be interested. And when you ask, okay, well, that's exactly what we want. You've clearly got it. Um, how about we do that for you? Oh, no, 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 no. And it's kind of, okay, well, what's, what's in that for you that you get resistant to or afraid of? And then you, that, there can be many different reasons for that. And you're kind of unpacking that with them and explore it. But there's a strong tendency to hold on to the criticism because it feels powerful at the time. And so it kind of feels like, no, I need it to really push me. But then when you break it down, it often just makes them feel much more uh, low motivation, low energy and, and miserable, um, and not wanting to reach out to others for help. I mean, people actually want to punish themselves as well. There is that kind of sense that, oh, that if, I, if I punish myself, then I'll be better next time. Yeah. Ne next time the thing comes around, I will behave differently or something. Very, very much so. And I mean, there are different um, traditions where if you have done something bad, you do have to punish yourself. So, you know, there are studies that have been done where you describe something bad you've done, you will spend after that, you get the chance if you want to, to put your hand in a, a freezing cold water presser. And uh, if you say something bad that you've done, you'll hold your hand in there for significantly longer than if you describe something neutral about your day or something pleasant about your day. So we have a tendency to want to, in some ways, punish it. I don't know if it's to get like a, a balance, like restore some kind of internal balance. Um, you know, we've done something bad or haven't done something good. And so we kind of smack on the, the punishment. But sometimes it can come from the fact that how people have related to me uh, in my everyday life must be the way people see me or see me as value and then I start to relate to myself in the same way. So you kind of talk to the person, uh, describe your parent in three words and sometimes they'll say, oh, busy, focused, uh, disciplined. And you're like, okay, um, wasn't a lot of warmth in, in that early relationship. And then you kind of unpack it more and it's like they were often yelled at or spoken to in ways that they have now adopted themselves and call themselves the same. It's, it's terrible. And one of the interesting things that you're talking about is how these attitudes to compassion change in different cultures as well. Because a lot of, a lot of studies of psychology happen to be done in Western democracies, don't they? It's, it's not necessarily... You, you make this question of, of where you're... It, it, where, where the person who's dropped all their shopping in the street or fallen over, where they're most likely to get helped. It's, it's, it's not in Sydney. No. <laughs> no, probably Mulaney. Um, you'd get the most help. No, um, Rio de Janeiro is where you would be most likely helped. Um, and, and, and cities that were much lower um, in that rating were, were cities like you know, New York, Kuala Lumpur and stuff like that. But um, certainly the culture has a big influence. So... I went to Japan to do a workshop with um, uh, clinical psychologists there in compassion th uh, focused therapies, and there is no translation of compassion in Japanese. 
And so you, it's like, oh my goodness, how did we get so many people to the workshop when there's no translation for it? Um, uh, but, so the first part is getting uh, a discussion, which was what Socratic dialoguing was all about. It's kind of like, this is what I mean by compassion. What do you mean? And then you give examples and counterexamples backwards and forwards so you can arrive on the same page. And that's often what we're doing in therapy too, because a lot of people will come in and will be very clear that I don't want compassion, I don't need niceness, you know, I don't want to be let off the hook. And it's like, <laughs> two things run through your mind. Well, niceness isn't that bad. <laughs> I wouldn't mind my life being a little bit more uh, surrounded by nice people. But also, secondly, um, compassion isn't letting you off the hook at all. Compassion's about addressing the thing that, that you're suffering about, and that means coming into contact with the pain and getting a sense of what is that pain about, and that that's difficult and takes a lot of bravery. One of the other statistics which I liked in the book was this proof that reading literature, <laughs> yeah. reading literature increases your empathy, that the studies yeah. have proved it. it. Reading other stuff doesn't. Yeah. yeah, don't read my book, definitely read Alexander's. His will help you with empathy. So the idea there being uh, the more... Uh, you, the more you're exposed to, the, the, the greater variety and diversity you can start to appreciate. And so if you can read fictional books that take you through different experiences, you can start to see the world through different eyes. And the more you get of that, it makes it a little bit easier to then empathise with, with someone else, whereas if you read nonfiction, not so much. Yeah. So how did, look, did, our last question, how did you get into compassion? I mean, I did... I, I don't mean to suggest that you're kind of evangelical about this. I just oh, wonder, did you have kind of a, a, a Damascene moment where suddenly you saw compassion <laughs> as the light? No? No. Um, I guess what just fascinates me is it's how, how easily it's turned off. You know, it's just turned off so easily just through setting up competitive environments. We, we no longer are interested in the person right beside us. We're interested in how I'm performing and, and how I'm going and... Uh, so I'm really interested in all the things that can just naturally turn off something which is there so easily and how you don't have to do a 10-week compassion retreat or meditation. You can just subtly change things in an environment and it can lift uh, the compassionate interactions between people. So I just get fascinated with how quickly we don't, we don't do it. Well, look, thank you for writing the book. Thank you for coming to Melanie to talk about it. Oh, no, thank Please you. put your hands together for Chance Kirby. Thank you.